Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to our podcast. I'm really excited today. We're speaking with Ethan Zindler, who is the head of America's at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. If you don't know about Bloomberg New Energy Finance, they are the go-to for data on deals, what's going on in the space and the market. You can learn a lot about what's happening and what the future market looks like from their research. Ethan has a deep history in leading that research. We talked today a lot about not only what the market trends are and what that research shows, but also about just the progress over the market over the last 10 years. As Ethan talks about, it's gone from an industry of folks at, at all the trade shows with ponytails to a much more professional audience. You take that however you deem, but you can learn more about Bloomberg New Energy Finance at their website and we'll let's get started. Ethan, thank you so much for joining us. You know, you have had a fascinating background and there's a lot to cover with Bloomberg New Energy Finance, but I want to step back a little bit and talk about your broader personal history. You actually spent some time in the political scene working on the Clinton-Gore campaign and then later in the White House. First of all, what led you down that track and what was your role in the White House? So I was definitely a political sort of junkie all the way from high school through college. I worked on a number of campaigns. Actually, you know, the Clinton one you know about because that's the one that where we won. Yeah. But I, before <laughs> that, worked on the Dukakis campaign because oh, I'm yeah. from Brookline, Massachusetts, and which is where Dukakis is from. And then worked for Feinstein when she ran but lost for governor. Eventually, right. she became senator. So I'd always just been really into politics and really, really into campaigns. And so I did that. And then when Clinton won... What was your role in the campaign? So I had, for the last one, the first half of the Clinton campaign, I was sort of a glorified baggage checker. In other (laughs) words, I was in charge of making sure that the press didn't lose their bags on their plane, (laughs) which sometimes happened. And for the second half of the campaign, I had a great job where I was the quote unquote youth media coordinator. And Mm. my job was to like get Clinton to do MTV and get Clinton to talk to college press and doing radio actualities for college radio stations and all kinds of stuff that back then seemed really cool, hip and happening, but which now is like seems ancient as could be because the (laughs) the internet came away and basically made all that stuff seemed really... But back then, believe it or not, getting a presidential campaign, a presidential candidate on something other than NBC, CBS, or ABC was considered sort of unconventional right, at that right, time. Right, right, right. Say they're popping up on night, the nightly shows. Yeah, they're time. anywhere now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you were a pioneer then. <laughs> I guess I was. And then at the White House, I worked in the Office of National Service, which was oh, yeah. the office that wrote the AmeriCorps legislation and helped get that passed. Big priority for President Clinton. Yeah, it was. It was basically, I mean, frankly, it was more or less like a two-line campaign promise that had almost no policy behind it. Yeah. And then when we won, it was like, wow, okay, I guess we got to actually make this right. <laughs> make this happen. But luckily, there was an office called the Office of National Service that, that had been established under Bush. And what we learned is that mostly what the people who had been in that office had been doing is writing press releases to sort of cite you know, a thousand points of light, different things that people had done in service, but not actually been responsible for like writing legislation or overseeing really anything. So that's what that office did. It's incredible to see what the AmeriCorps folks do every day. It's a great program. It's survived a lot of attempts to (laughs) to eliminate it for sure. So the transition from the White House to MTV, how did that at MTV, I did a couple of things, but the one that maybe the most interesting was that I became their quote, quote web producer. So oh, in wow. 2000 really was the first year pretty much that MTV had decided that they wanted to cover a presidential campaign on the internet. 
And back then, the idea of having like a website, wow, that was pretty you know unusual. So we did right. a lot of fun stuff to try and cover the campaign. We were very much integrated with the folks who were covering the campaign on air as well, this choose or lose group. Anyway, again, it sounds incredibly antiquated now, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. And we did- Was Rock it. the Vote out by then? Or? So Rock the Vote was around then. And Rock the Vote was definitely very much about sort of registering people. Choose or Lose, which was the MTV thing, was about covering the campaign. Oh, okay. And so, but yeah, it was ultimately all about getting young people registered to vote. That, yeah. was, that was the end goal. But we really tried to take an even hand, even-handed way of covering that campaign, a Bush-Gore campaign, which of course then went into overtime for about a month, <laughs> as you, I'm sure well remember. So right. it was a lot of fun. So what led from that to clean energy? Right. Anyway, if this sounds like a circuitous career path, it's because it was. (laughs) I then went to business school and the thought was, well, maybe I'll do this and then I'll come back and work in the media business some more. But I went to business school and then while I was there, I graduated at a time that was just the worst time, or at least at that point, what seemed like the worst time for anybody to get out of a business school program. And my wife had just had a daughter and I looked at a lot of my fellow graduates and they really were having trouble finding jobs. I'm from New England originally, and I spent a lot of time on Cape Cod as a kid. And there was a job at the local newspaper there as the one and only business reporter for the Cape right. Cod Times. And at the time, even then, I will say this, I knew and that- you there, MBA, so you were qualified. I figured I was qualified. <laughs> I also figured I'd be, the, you know, frankly, the lowest paid member of the Columbia Business School graduating <laughs> class, but I would have a job. And my wife and I were ready to get out of New York post 9-11, I think we, with a daughter. We were pretty much done for at least a while. And also, I went to the paper and I loved it. I think it's just a fantastic place to work and interesting people and real commitment to good journalism. So we picked up and we moved to West Yarmouth, Massachusetts, where I live. And I covered, and the reason eventually this is getting clean energy. I knew even at business school when I was looking at the Cape Cod Times was that they were building or trying to build a major offshore wind project out there called Cape Wind. And I thought, wow, if I'm the business reporter, I guess I'll get to cover that. Frankly, it took me a good year at the paper before they let me touch the story because there were other people. It was the hottest story that Cape Cod Times was covering or one of them, but eventually I got to cover it. So I got really very, very familiar with the Cape Wind project, the controversy surrounding it. I knew the opponents. I know Jim Gordon well, who's the developer and did a lot of work, tried to use my MBA as much as I could to try and sort of think about the cash flows around that project and how it could pencil out and how it could work and all the things that were around it. And it was a fantastic experience. On a good day, you'd write a story that would make the front page and both sides would call and yell at you. And that would happen pretty (laughs) frequently, both the opponents and 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 the supporters of the project. So what led from that into sort of further research and clean energy and, of course, of Bloomberg? Yeah. So about three years into that, I loved it. But my wife, frankly, was ready to move back to a larger urban area. So she moved down first. But eventually I found out about this outfit called New Energy Finance that was just starting. And of course, back then, like, you know, we think of this as an industry of real size and it was very small back then. So, you know, I heard about this guy, Michael Liebreich. He was starting a company in London. I was down here in D.C. and he and I- This is around 2005-ish? Yeah, around then. And I I wish I could even remember the exact time, but about then. And he said, hey, we're going to start this thing up. And um, actually, at the time, New Energy Finance was so- Well, two things. Well, one, it was was very, very small. And two, I was going to be the first U.S. employee. They had no employees in the United States at all. So I interviewed with him and I was like, oh, it sounds good. But like, what the hell is this going to be? And it's a startup and I got a kid and how am I going to make all this work? So he said, look, you know, if you want to check us out, you know, if you fly over to London, if you pay for the ticket and then you take the job, we'll reimburse for you. If you don't, then that ticket's on you. So I said, all right. So I flew over to London 
showed up on a Saturday morning and I went over to the office and I rang the bell and actually nobody answered. And I was yeah. like, oh shit, that's a huge mistake. <laughs> but eventually found them and I spent the day talking with the CEO, Michael Liebreich, who's a good friend and someone I admire a great deal to this day. And I talked with about five other people and each one of the people I asked them about new energy finance, I said, so what's the business model? And each one of them gave me a totally different answer. Yeah. <laughs> so, but my belief was basically that this technologies were really exciting, that they would change the world, that, that were, they were somewhat inevitable. And frankly, right. that's the one thing I give myself credit for, not for believing in the right company or anything or being a genius, but just believing that this stuff was actually going to grow. And yeah. so I was very fortunate that it has since then. Yeah, you have been able to see the growth of that industry. I mean, we're now at a point where, you know, we're through the evolution of do these technologies even work? And now it's you know, how do we drive down capital to get more implementation? Exactly. So it was back in those days, it was just sort of like, okay, well, will there be a good feed-in tariff or strong subsidy? Okay, that's where there'll be a market. And right. when that get, get disappears, then that market disappears. You know, that still happens to some degree today, but we've now definitely moved to the point where this stuff is legitimately economic in more contexts. So for our listeners, explain what Bloomberg New Energy Finance does. Talk a little bit about the growth sure. over the last really... 12 years you've been there. So New Energy was called New Energy Finance, a startup company. And again, there were about 20, 25 of us when I joined in about 2005. And at the time, basically, we just didn't really know what the business was going to be other than we wanted to gather as much reliable data and information as we could about all this stuff that was happening. And frankly, what the actual revenue model was going to be for us was far from clear. As we joke is that we had sort of the Saudi Arabia of energy data. So all of us, me too, everybody was just constantly logging deals and logging organizations and every scrap of data we could get, we put into a database. The closest that we had to an actual publication was that we would publish like a newsletter every month, including one on the Americas, which I used to do. But the reality of it is that that was kind of it. And we tried to get, we started to get subscribers and access people to access the data. And that worked okay, but it didn't generate a lot of money. And then at some point, we sort of said to ourselves, wait, okay, well, we've now been doing this for about three years. Like, okay, we actually know something about this. Why don't we write sort of more in-depth research about the trends, not just news, but like actually what's going on, the microeconomic stuff. We have all this data. We can analyze it ourselves. And besides, frankly, nobody else is two things. Nobody else is doing it. And this industry is not that old that there are any super well-established experts that we can't potentially be those people. Right. And so that's basically the business basically was we started and have sold access to the research that we produce and importantly, access to the underlying data. I think that's always something we like trying to emphasize as a differentiator is that we don't just say, okay, we think this much wind is going to get built next year. We say, okay, this is how much wind we, it was going to get built. Here's the Excel sheet where you can take a look at the projects and where we think they're going to be. And if you disagree, go ahead, right. reshuffle the data, come up with a different forecast. You guys were playing big data before it was a cool thing. I guess. So there, thankfully, <laughs> it was little big data because right. there wasn't that much going on in the industry. That It wasn't that hard that you couldn't have like a dozen of us basically just tap, tap, tapping stuff yeah. into a database. So over time with that growth, what have you seen in the industry and sort of what are you projecting out? What are some of the common sort of exciting things for the industry moving forward? Well, certainly, I mean, my old friend Jody Roussel from the American Council on Renewable Energy used to joke about the ponytail factor. Yeah. So the early days of the clean energy, she used to say that like the sign of sort of progress is a decreasing number of men with ponytails. <laughs> Little did she know back, that was back, now it's like, you know, man buns or whatever at the hell. So it's, I don't know if that's a great metric anymore, but back then you saw a sort of professionalization of the industry yeah. as, more, as frankly, it became less people who were sort of at, and great respect to people who are advocates, but it became less about advocates and more about money people right. and entrepreneurs and people who are hard-headed and professional. And so 
definitely have seen a lot more of that, a lot more people who've come in, certainly opportunists along with them, that's for sure. And, yeah. and but, but look, you need that to make the industry grow. So that's been a huge thing. And then I would say that, so the professionalization, the second thing has been commoditization, I would say, in terms of, in right. particular around solar equipment, as you know, the, the price of solar equipment has plummeted and it's being driven by economies of scale more than anything. I think for a long time there, our view, it was really all about technology, 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 and all these different types of technologies that were out there. And I think there's still, it's still a fascinating industry in terms of the various technologies that could still change our world. But as you know, the, the things that have really come along and just achieved things have been more about scale and less, not less about technology, but there hasn't been that kind of super eureka moment, I would say. Right. For solar, it's still basically the same technology we was looking at 10 years ago. It's just being done so yeah. much bigger and cheaper than it was then. There's less reliance on the concept of like the holy grail that's going to break us. Yeah, down. it's got to be that one thing that just sort of changes right. changes our world. Even batteries, people keep talking about in the same context. But batteries, again, at scale, it's really, really driven down cost. So I want to dive into one of the recent reports you guys put out. In Earlier this month, Bloomberg Energy Finance reported that global investment in clean energy such as wind and solar reached about 333.5 billion in 2017. It's about a 3% rise from last year, mm -hmm. but about a 7% off the record overall. What do you view as sort of driving this trend? And what do you think of those 2017 numbers? So, I mean, I think the good news about the numbers is, first of all, is you know that the price per unit of wind and solar keep coming down. Right. So if you keep posting dollar figures that are more or less in the same zone, and we really have been in somewhere in the neighborhood of, give or take, around $300 billion now for the last five or six years, then you're talking about more and more stuff getting built. And actually, I don't have a final number on total clean energy build this year, but it's probably going to be somewhere around 150, 160 gigawatts. It's a lot of capacity, and yeah. it's a majority of the new power generating capacity that's getting built typically in a year is now zero carbon, particularly if you include large hydro, and definitely if you include nuclear. So, you know, this is, my first thing is always like another evidence that we should not refer to this as alternative energy. This right. is mainstream energy. There's no question about that. So I would say that's the main sort of takeaway I would say from last year. The other thing is underlying that, of course, is the phenomenon of China, which is just incredible. I'm going to just like kind of continues to blow our minds. Yeah. Like, you know, we counted about 50 gigawatts of solar that got built in China last year. That's like, I don't know, I think our high water mark in the US is like, I don't know, 12 or 15 gigawatts. So like, I mean, that's a lot. Crazy. That is a lot of <laughs> solar. And every time we think, oh, it's just going to cool down a little bit, it just goes. It just yeah. goes and goes. So China is about, I don't know, roughly about half the world, about 40% of all total investment in the world went into China for clean energy. I want to come back to China. I want to come back to the yeah. international space because it, it's exciting as stuff is happening here. It's equally exciting yeah. internationally, which is great for the, the industry. But going back to the 333 billion or 300 billion over the last few years, the World Economic Forum put out a report last year that less than half a percent of institutional capital is invested in the space. Continues to rise, there's targets to reach 1%, which would be great. But looking at that 300 billion, do you guys sort of break down where some of that's coming from? We do. It's interesting, actually, though, there's two kind of two data sets in terms of dollars. So there's also green bond financing, which right. is typically over $100 billion. But it is not, and I've got to check what our final number is going to be for 2017, but it'll be somewhere around that. It's actually not a subset because that's money that there's some overlap, but there's some differences as well. And it includes some things that aren't clean energy, just to be clear. Right. Uh, but look, the trend has been clearly upward on the part of institutional investors. In some ways, it's I always sort of joke and say that like, 
the way in which our industry raises money is still really immature. So you're 300 and some billion dollars. And then the large majority of that is project finance. And the large majority of the project finance is simply money that's raised through some form of syndication of debt and, and, you know, a small handful number of players. When you're talking now tens, hundreds of billions of dollars, like, you know, the industry could and should and is, in some cases, raising money in larger chunks over the institutional markets through bond offerings and pension fund investments. So that's the way things have to keep going. I think we'll see more of that because I think, amazingly enough, there's still, you operate in the sector, so I think this is kind of, seems like, duh, but there's a lot of people for whom they're still like, wow, like wind, solar, that's kind of weird technology. What's that yeah. risk about? That's kind of, you're like, well, wait a second, guys, like now we've got a lot of years of performance here right. to show that this works. And second, like you take the fuel price risk out of the equation, like don't tell me that this is higher risk than projects where you really don't know what your input costs are going to be over 20 year life. Yeah. So I think actually institutional investors are figuring that out. And on top of that, they are facing some pressure, of course, to move away from investments in fossil fuels. So those two things combined, you definitely see some of the players, the California pension funds, like definitely been in it for a while. But you see some interesting moves recently. A Quebec pension fund bought a portfolio of Mexican wind projects. The Texas State Teachers Retirement Fund is taking direct investments in renewables projects as well. So there's more, just definitely more to come in that space. I mean, we see, it's interesting you brought up the check size too, because I think what we see in the market today is you've got folks that are beginning to get interested, the education is there, the pressure is there, right, from stakeholders, but there has to be the right check size for them to even yeah. take a look. And, you know, unless you're talking utility scale solar or utility scale wind, putting that check size together is challenging, right? And you've got to aggregate. But I think the projects now are out there in size and scale enough begin to attract. I and mean, I think it's always going to be, I mean, look, we're probably the most bullish about distributed solar of like almost anybody. And we think it's going to really revolutionize the world. But the reality is it's always going to be, I mean, if it gets bigger, it's going to go from tens of hundreds of thousands of systems to millions of systems. Right. And it's got to get aggregated. It's got to, to keep driving the costs of finance down. Do you have a lot of those institutions coming to you all for data? We do. A bunch of them are clients. I would say this, though, it's interesting for us as a business is that Look, it's more often to be someone who's like directly involved in direct project finance of individual projects and less likely to be someone who's at a pension fund for the reason we were sort of saying that they haven't done as much historically. But the more that the pension funds get involved, the better. And the other thing is, you know, our business now, you know, we're part of Bloomberg. So our data and information is available over the Bloomberg terminal. And actually, that's where a Mm. lot of these large pension fund folks are. They do have terminal access. So a big part of what we're doing is saying, hello, you've got a terminal and you're interested in clean energy. And hey, did you know you could look up, you know, the last... 10 wind farm financings in Texas if you want and see who did them. And in many cases, like, oh, they didn't know that. That's right. cool. So are they coming? You see them coming to some of the events too? Yeah, they definitely come to the events. We'll have at our summit, which I'll give a plug for in April, we're definitely going to have a panel. You know, we've done it before. We'll do another one to sort of do lay of the land. We'll certainly have California represented on that. We'll probably have someone from New York State represented on there. I think we're going to try someone from Quebec, but we would like to also have, whether it's Texas or somebody else, you know, so it's not, as you know, there's some funds that have really been the most on the front foot on this stuff, yeah. but more are starting to come around now. That's great. So before we go international, we're sitting here in Washington, D.C. We're about six blocks away from the White House. Leading into 2017, there was a definite gasp among clean energy yeah. experts for fear of what was going to happen. But I think what we're seeing, federal policy aside, this has become a state-level game. The right things are moving. The cost of capital is, is coming down. The cost of panels are coming down. Wind projects are being implemented in, in 
conservative states that are getting champions. I think none of us expected. But we're, we are a year into the Trump administration. Putting aside the solar tariff piece, what do you guys view as the effects of the administration without being political yeah. sort of on the market? So actually, we got glad you asked because actually I'm trying to, our monthly VIP brief that we do for clients and actually to the public, I'm supposed to write this month about the one-year review of Trump yeah. because I wrote something right after he got elected in which tried to be as optimistic as possible, at least in saying, look, that the guy is a businessman. So any rational businessman, once they spend a little time, will figure out that like clean energy is a good deal for the U.S. And right. thus you don't want to actually kill it. A year later, I'm less optimistic that he's a rational businessman. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> I think, though, and it's probably more or less what I'll say in the piece, is that I think the good news for the industry is that these guys him and his administration, they do not understand like how to pull the levers of power very well. Yeah. And so they've certainly sought to lay a glove on the clean energy industry. But so far, I think they've been generally unsuccessful. And I would argue that it's largely that they don't really know how this stuff works all that well. I would say that the most meaningful, I mean, I think the Paris thing symbolically obviously was not great for the industry, but didn't really make a difference on the day-to-day stuff. I'd argue it just countered the amount of that came out of people announcing you know nike go this week going right. renewable energy like others said wait a minute if you're not going to do it, right corporate certainly they, they jumped right into the breach there's yeah. no question about that but i think that the bullet that the industry largely dodged was tax reform yeah and the tax credit at the fed when we're talking federal stuff the tax credit's the most important important policy. Absolutely. And basically, at the very end of the last year, as you know, they managed to more or less, I mean, it's complicated, I won't get into it too much, but they more or less managed to get the tax credits exempted from what would have been a floor level type of policy, this BEAT provision, without getting any more detail than that. This is going to be a very interesting year for financing, for project financing. There's going to be a lot of rethinking and there's going to be some reshuffling. And in some ways, what they did do at the end of the year will hurt the industry, but not nearly as bad as it could have been. Yeah, I agree. And going back to what the lovers conversation, I mean, you look across the bureaucracy and having sat in uh, like, like you have, you have to know, you can't just put an executive order. Yeah. You actually have to manage that executive well, order. You can't just tweet out that you're not yeah. going to subject <laughs> Florida offshore drilling. Right. Like you, you know, like there's actually a process. And the FERC thing to me is just like, and the effort, the Perry's effort, Secretary Perry's effort to basically tell FERC what to do. Yeah. And say, we want you to basically go reward coal fire generation. And them saying, well, actually, that's just not how this works. Yeah. That to me is like kind of case in point of like, that's not how the system works and it was refreshing to see them come out and show that it works. Yeah, I mean, there's things take time. As you know, you worked yeah. in government, right? It's Absolutely. not like you, you don't just sort of wake up one morning and decide how you want things to go. You actually have to be very clear and strategic about it. Absolutely. And they haven't been so far. So I'm gonna, before we end, I want to talk about international. You talked about China, which is incredibly exciting. And over two dozen countries last year invested more than a billion dollars in clean energy. What are we seeing out of the rest of the world? And is our... Lack of leadership today, stifling that, or are we just falling behind because we're not? That's a good question. I mean, the one thing I will say about sort of the rest of the world question is, look, the Chinese, is, if we want to look at this in kind of a competitive, from a competitive aspect, you know, as we sit here in Washington, and I know you're a former White House person and me formerly working White House a long time ago. That from a competitive aspect, the Chinese view this as a strategic opportunity on a right. lot of different levels, and they are moving very quickly to get their equipment, clean energy equipment, out 
to more markets. There are actually a variety of reasons for that, but one of which is because they've built an unprecedented volume of manufacturing capacity back home and they do not want idle plants. So right. they want they need markets. And then the second thing is that one way for them to actually exercise some soft power is to show up in a country and say, hello, we'll build you a nice big wind or solar project. We will bring you the equipment. And by the way, we will finance it too through the China right. Development Bank. And they are being very, very aggressive about that. Either and most likely you'll be using Chinese construction workers. Potentially, or, or <laughs> okay. even local. But yeah, I mean, for countries that have lack of access to capital and are interested in clean energy, it's yeah. almost like a turnkey solution. They're doing other things too, where they're actually shoving and just buying local developers. I was just in Brazil last week where uh, National Grid has bought a company called CPFL, which is a local developer uh, and owner of assets. We're seeing more and more of that take place. So I think the reality of it is, is that we focus a lot on Chinese as manufacturers. They are also international financiers and now developers as well. But look, from a global and climate perspective, great. If they have the cheapest capital and they can do it, fantastic. From a U.S. competitiveness perspective, it's not so great. Exactly. So first of all, thank you for all this. For folks that aren't familiar with Bloomberg New Energy Finance, how do they get involved? How do they engage you guys? Bloomberg New Energy Finance is, well, first of all, you can look us up on the web. But second of all, we have conferences, which are invite only, but we do, we're certainly interested in people who want to attend or speak at those. And, want, and of course, we love to have people read our stuff, which is far from free. But <laughs> uh, so then, and if you're interested in subscribing, you drop me a note. Yeah, it's interesting. We have a variety of pack of listeners, folks that are really on the investment side. We've got students just learning about the space, right? Yeah. So it's quite an interesting group. So I always ask the last question and the same, especially speaking to those folks just getting into the industry. If you could look back and you've got quite a, you've been set an interesting sort of roller coaster of a career mm-hmm. and you could give yourself a piece of advice coming out of high school or college, what would you say? Right now? Well, first off, if it was to myself, I would say you should be a better student. You should yeah. actually take it seriously. <laughs> so I was a pretty, bad, a pretty bad high school student. But actually, then I would also say, you know, it's not the end of the world if you aren't a great high school student because you can make it up in college. So I don't know. That would be the first thing. You know, this is the most, in some ways, it's very different from what, to myself, when I first joined this industry, there was very, very little, you know, not very, very little, but there was, it was a very much of a, of a small industry, which showed a lot of promise. Right. Now we've reached some real scale and some scope. And there's a great, there are a lot of great opportunities out there, I think, for people to get involved. I do think that though there's, as you know, as a person who's an entrepreneur, there's still a lot of areas for a startup. And there's yes. the one thing I am struck by, and we're very, as I said, very optimistic about the sort of distributed energy aspect of all of this. There's a lot of small projects to be done. There's millions of small projects to be done. And ultimately those add up to a lot of value. And I think so, you know, it's not always about like going off and f- trying to figure out how you finance a hundred million dollar wind farm. It's about figuring out how you finance a one million dollar rooftop or yeah. even a two hundred thousand dollar rooftop. Because frankly, all of this stuff, like I said, we model it and the economics look great and whatever. But at the end of the day, you need like an army of people to actually do all of this. So right. I think local development is something which is always going to be an opportunity. And if you're really a you know self-started enterprising and you live in a place where either A, power prices are really high or B, it's very sunny or, bo- or C, both of those things, you might want to look around and see like, is there anybody I could talk to about how I actually help them think about putting solar? Have ever thought about doing solar? And can I chat with them about it because the answer in many cases is huh i never really thought about that as you know and so i think those are where the opportunities lie you don't need a a ponytail to get into it now no (laughs) (laughs) man bun might right (laughs) ethan thank you so much for your time and thanks for joining us awesome thanks john thank you ethan for the fantastic rundown of what's going on in the space there's so much moving in the clean energy market we want to keep you up to speed here at experts only Please be in touch with your thoughts on who else we should be interviewing. 
I'd like to thank our producers, Lauren Glickman and Emily Connor for their great work. And please go to cleancapital.com to learn more. Look forward to continuing the conversation. Mm-hmm.